Now let's take our Bibles and look to Matthew 27 today. We're beginning in verse 62 and following on into chapter 28 in just a moment. But let's start in your Bibles reading chapter 27, verse 62 of Matthew. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. In other words, Pilate is giving them their request. He commissions the soldiers to go. The guard, as they're called. Go and make it secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now, certainly the Sanhedrin, that is the Jewish leadership, had not forgotten the promise of Jesus that he would resurrect, that he would be raised on the third day and believing him to be an imposter, believing his message to be fraudulent, they go to Pilate and say to him, let's secure the temple. Let's seal it with the authentic seal of Rome, and let's ensure that that body does not come out of that tomb. They weren't worried about the resurrection. They didn't believe that. They didn't believe Jesus to be supernatural. And many of them, the scribes especially, the, the uh, Sadducees, did not expect there to ever be a resurrection, much less Jesus. But no doubt, they wanted to ensure that the body would not be removed from the grave. This is an image of what a first century grave might have looked like, and the, the picture depicts that stone that would be rolled in position. We, we often don't think about how that stone gets put in place, but it's customary that the stone would actually be at an elevated point than the lower section of the tomb entrance and that stone is just simply wedged and when it comes time to seal the tomb to close the tomb you just knock the wedge and gravity takes effect and the stone rolls into place and what the Sanhedrin are asking is for Pilate to guard to set the seal on that tomb which means they take a rope and they wrap it around the opening of the tomb where the rock is and they take clay and put the clay affixed over the rope and then the signet stamp of the Rome is placed into that clay and as it's hardened it would be evident if anybody tampered with that tomb and he put a contingent of guard there a number of guards most think it's four who are there protecting to ensure that no one is going to steal the body of Jesus and thereby the rumor would catch out that uh, he has been raised from the grave. Now all the plans have been put into order and all the Sanhedrin and all the power of Pilate is now set but they are not going to keep that body in that tomb. It is certain that no grave, no stone, no Roman seal, no contingent of guard is going to thwart the plan of God which was determined before the world was put in order that Jesus was coming out of that tomb. He would be resurrected. And the power of God would be on demonstration. No matter how much they strategize, they are not going to interrupt at all the plan that God had put in place for our salvation, that Christ would be resurrected. So as the prophets and the Lord Jesus said, he would die, he would be buried, 
and he would be resurrected from that tomb certainly he has done just as he said he would now as you know as the narrative continues uh, the the uh, Sanhedrin have unwittingly provided for us one of the chief evidences of the resurrection of Christ they wanted to ensure that that body could not be stolen the Roman guards were in place the seal was in place and since the resurrection took place, there is no plausible explanation, no rumor that actually could catch hold that those disciples had stolen the body of Christ. And they unwittingly provided that evidence for us. It's a reminder, as J.C. Riles would say, it's a reminder to us what God uses at the hands of people. God uses the plans and the uh, the laying out of those plans by evil people for his own good isn't that what romans 8 28 says that all things work together for good for those who are called according to the purposes of god and so they are attempting to thwart the plans of god god uses even their own plans and the initiation of that plan to prove the validity of the resurrection now, following the chief uh, the uh, the res resurrection of christ the sanhedrin the chief priest especially went to the guards and told them here's what you say when the guards told them of the resurrection here was the plan that was unfolded tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were sleeping so they took the money and they did as they were directed and the story has been spread among jews to this day i don't know about you but that doesn't seem very plausible to me imagine if you were among the crowd who were asking the guards what took place now tell us what happened well you see we were fast asleep hard asleep so deep was our sleep that we didn't feel the earthquake that tremored all of jerusalem so deep was our sleep that we never heard that stone being rolled away so deep was our sleep that we never saw the men who did it but i'm telling you those disciples took his body well how do you know if you're asleep well we don't know exactly how but he they took the body i don't know about you but that just doesn't hold water to me can i just tell you that if you're going to come up with an excuse that the resurrection of jesus didn't take place that's not the one to use it doesn't make sense but as the old adage say says if you tell a lie and repeat it often enough people will believe it and that's what's happened Jewish rabbis perpetuated that lie and continued to tell that lie to their people, and it's told even to this day. But it doesn't matter if that's the lie that they present, or later the swoon theory would come about, or the no-death theory that would be led about, or the hallucination theory. It doesn't matter. Whatever it is, it's all folly. It all caves and crumbles when you see the evidence that is given clearly by those who were there and those who experienced the resurrection of Christ. So what really did happen? Well, Matthew, who could give a firsthand account of the resurrection of Jesus, tells us exactly what happened. And if you flip the chapter to chapter 28, you can read his account. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came to roll back and roll back the stone and sat on it. 
and its angel's appearance was like lightning and his clothing was white as snow verse 4 says and for fear of him the guards trembled and became like dead men but the angel said to the women do not be afraid for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified and I think this is one of the most powerful verses in all the Bible verse 6 he is not here for he has risen he said come and see the place where he lay so they quickly go and go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead and behold he is going before you to Galilee there you will see him see I have told you verse 8 so they <clears throat> excuse me departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples and behold Jesus met them and said greetings and they came and took hold of his feet and worshiped him and when Jesus said to them do not be afraid go and tell my brothers go to Galilee there they will see me now there's two groups who are privy to what has happened at the tomb that morning two groups those who are for Jesus and those who are against Jesus those who have accepted him those who have rejected him both groups are privy and insightful to all the events that happened on resurrection morning one is the guards that have been stationed by Pilate who have been instructed at the request of the Sanhedrin to make sure that body stays in that tomb they are privy to what happened and transpired on that morning and the other four women Matthew identifies just two of them narrowing down to Mary Magdalene and the other Mary but all of them saw the same thing and they both reported back to their people the same thing that Jesus was resurrected and that tomb is empty they both scurry back to their people of course Mary and the other Mary go to the disciples and tell them of those events and the, the guards go back to the Sanhedrin and of course that plot uh, was laid out you know it's common among all the people in the narrative maybe not thought about very often during the Easter narrative but what is common among everybody in the narrative is that they are all marked with unbelief and doubt there's not a single person on Easter morning who is anticipating the resurrection they all doubted or disbelieved that the resurrection would actually occur how do I know that to be true well look at the women they're there to anoint the body for its long-term burial now remember everything has happened very quickly on Thursday evening Jesus was arrested through the evening into the early hours of Friday morning there have been secret trials they were mock trials done in error and done unlawfully but he was tried through the night while the majority of the city was asleep by the morning at nine o'clock Jesus is nailed to the cross and by three o'clock that afternoon he's dead the sun is setting in the evening and as the sun sets the Sabbath comes in and during the Sabbath no work can be done the women longing to anoint his body were not allowed to do so the body was put in the tomb and here it is the day after the Sabbath on Sunday morning they go with their burial spices to permanently anoint the body for its long-term committal those ladies were not looking for a resurrected Jesus that day certainly the disciples were not believing that Jesus was going to resurrect either if you remember they are scattered on Friday night 
they, they deny the Lord and they leave the Lord and they are distraught about that. They are believing that those persecutors who nailed Jesus to the cross are probably coming after them as well. So they have been in hiding since that point in time. And the Sanhedrin did not believe that Jesus would be raised from the dead. Oh, they believed that perhaps his body would be out of that tomb, but they never ever thought that truly he would be resurrected from the grave. I wonder where you are today in your understanding of the resurrection. If you're one who doubts, or if you're one who doesn't believe, it's good for you to be here today. You came probably because somebody invited you and you wanted to honor them. Maybe you, became, you came because your family is here and you wanted to honor your family by coming to church on Easter. I say that that's good. That's admirable. You've done an honorable thing by coming today, but maybe in your mind you're thinking all of this I just don't know about and all this I just don't believe you're in good company the disciples of Jesus were in the same place the women the followers of Christ in the same place the religious leaders of the first century of the Jewish people were in the same place I'm not bothered by your doubt I'm not bothered by your unbelief what I would be bothered by is if you would settle there without pursuing the evidence. Is what I know is that those women who were discovering the truth as it was coming about came to believe the truth. And when they ran back to the disciples to tell them that the tomb was empty, Peter and John ran to the tomb to investigate it themselves and John believes immediately when he sees the empty tomb. Peter, we're not told whether he believes or not. I'm assuming he's still not quite certain. He's perplexed by it all. But that evening, when Jesus showed right there where they were gathered, he believed. And there was an unfolding of others who would come to discover evidence and go with the evidence. Thomas, as you know, was not there that night. When Jesus showed on the morning of his arrest that evening, he showed to the disciples, Thomas wasn't there. And he said to them after they told that Jesus was there in their presence, Thomas says, I'm not going to believe it. I won't believe it till I touch the nail print hands or put my hand in the side where I saw that spear of Rome thrust into him. I'll not believe it until I do that. Eight days later, that's exactly what happened. Jesus appeared before Thomas and the others and Thomas touches those nail-pierced hands and Thomas places his hand there at the side of Jesus and Thomas believes. I would say that doubt is okay as long as you're willing to pursue the evidence. You know, God is not bothered by your doubt. It could be like hunger Hunger is good as long as it drives you to good food to eat. And doubt can be good as long as it drives you to a pursuit of the evidence. You know, when it comes down to it, Jesus is not requiring of you or me or anybody else to have blind faith. So I would challenge you today in your doubt and in your unbelief, do the integrity thing. Do the dig. 
Discover what you can find about it. Look at the evidence. Read the scriptures. You say, well, I don't believe the Bible. Okay, go to the firsthand accounts of people who were alive during that time. Go to the historians who were there, like Josephus, and read their accounts. I am certain that when you read their accounts and you discover it for yourself, you'll come back to the Bible, the authoritative word of God, and it will all make sense to you then. But do your work. Don't be intellectually apathetic and don't be intellectually lazy. Do the work. Because God's not just demanding of you to have faith without thought. He certainly didn't demand that of his disciples. So dig and discover. I am fully confident that if you seek the evidence, the evidence will be clear to you. Now allow me, if you will, just to give you a little head start on your digging and give you six evidences that the resurrection is true. And then at the conclusion of that, I'd like to point to why in the world that matters. So look at the evidences. Here they are. Number one, the eyewitness accounts. Those who were there who witnessed the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, these early Christian apologists who directly identify those people who are witnesses of Jesus Christ in the first century. They saw him, they talked to him, they touched him, they ate with him, they spent almost a month and a half with him after his resurrection at various times. And many of them endured great persecution as they continued to proclaim their witness of Jesus Christ. And Jesus had instructed them in Luke 26 that they would be his witnesses, the witnesses of these things he's talking about, the life and the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And sure enough, as the disciples and the followers of Christ, those witnesses of Christ post-resurrection would state to others, we are witnesses of these things. And when they would say those things that they had witnessed, there was a great attack that would come against them. Now let me ask you a question. You and I might be willing to be persecuted and even martyred for our testimony if we believed a lie. A lot of people do that. Those who hijacked planes on September the 11th and rammed them into buildings or attempted to do so, they did that believing themselves to be martyred because they believed a lie. There's a lot of people who would be willing to do that. But what if you didn't believe the lie? What if you knew the lie to be a hoax? Would you give yourself to that? If the disciples were the ones who were stealing the body of Christ, they then would know the ruse. They would know the fabrication. Would they be willing to be persecuted, some of them up to 40 years until their execution? Would they be willing to do that for a hoax? I dare say not. I was intrigued this week when one of our staff members sent a text to us as a group from Chuck Colson. As you know, he was a special counsel to President Richard Nixon who was involved in the Watergate scandal. He makes a statement about the resurrection that I think is pretty worthy of us talking about. He says, I know the resurrection is a fact and Watergate proved it to me. Now that gets my attention right there. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Every one was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put into prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. 
catch this watergate embroiled 12 men the most 12 of the most powerful men in all the world and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks you're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years absolutely impossible and you can't disregard the eyewitnesses of Jesus and not only were they witnesses of Christ their lives were totally transformed these are men who left Jesus at the time that he needed them the most the day of his arrest their chief leader Peter was not only one to leave him but denied him three times before two little girls and a bystander and for the other days they're hiding out in the upper room and in other places hoping not to be found out but when they saw the resurrected Christ everything changed they went out of their hiding and into their streets and they boldly proclaimed publicly for the rest of their days Christ crucified Christ resurrected and Christ returning again they did it with confidence and faith what caused them such a change I'll tell you what caused them such a change the resurrection of Jesus Christ secondly the conversion of Christian antagonists. Saul of Tarsus was one of the most cruel antagonists against Christianity that was walking the planet. His whole life was given to stamping out the message of Jesus Christ and persecuting everybody of the way who followed him. He dedicated himself to beating them and imprisoning them and killing them until he met the resurrected Jesus and when he met the resurrection of Jesus he had an immediate and drastic transformation he went from the antagonist to the proclaimer and the rest of his days were given to this message of Christ that he was crucified and that he resurrected he did it unto all the persecution coming against him cost him his life he stayed true to that course because Christ set him on a new path after the resurrection. James was the half-brother of Jesus. James was among that cohort of family who went where Jesus was teaching one day. And they called to those who were outside the house, because the house was packed where Jesus was teaching, tell him to come out here. His family wants to see him. You know what they wanted to do? They wanted to take him back home thinking him to be out of his mind but all that changed when James the half brother of Jesus saw the resurrected son of God James no longer thought Jesus to be out of his mind James dedicated his mind and body and soul and spirit to the work of Jesus Christ and he constantly encouraged the followers of Christ in letter and in his voice he was among the first of the martyrs to be recorded in the Bible he held true to that testimony that Jesus is the Christ who is resurrected from the dead the antagonists are radically transformed Transform. Number three, the tomb of Jesus is empty. It's one of the greatest witnesses of Jesus' resurrection. It's still empty. Amen. Now, mind you that the crucifixion was a public demonstration. 
His death was public. If you wanted to see Jesus Christ dying, if you wanted to see him take his last breath, it was publicly available for you to go to that place right outside of Jerusalem and see him die. And if you wanted to know where his body was placed in the tomb, you could go straight to the tomb of Aram, Joseph of Arimathea, for there it was publicly placed. And just as public was his death and just as public was his burial, so was his resurrection. You can go to the tomb. I've been there myself, and I can tell you with my own eyes, I saw it empty. Now, if you are part of the Sanhedrin of the day, all you have to do is show a body. All you have to do is show the dead body of Christ and the hoax would be identified for what it is. And you know the Sanhedrin scurried far and wide looking for that body. They never found that dead body. You know why? Because Jesus wasn't dead. He was resurrected to life. And that tomb is still empty today. It's the great witness that Jesus was resurrected all the disciples were persecuted all of them were martyred except for one for their faith and testimony that Jesus Christ was resurrected from the grave now listen they would not have been willing to die for a hoax so you've got to come up with a better reason than the disciples stole his body for that empty tomb you better have a better reason than that then number four the Old Testament, the prophets, and Jesus all foretold of his death and resurrection, and it all unfolded exactly as they said it would. Did you know there are 300 prophecies that go back not just a few hundred years, but actually go back thousands of years? Did you know you can trail it all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when God first spoke about an offspring of woman who would come and provide for us a redemption and a crushing of the serpent? Did you know that? And all those 300 prophecies were pointing to Jesus, his life or his death or his resurrection, and every one of them in the exact detail that they were written, whether hundreds or thousands of years before, came about in its precision. And Jesus himself told his followers and all who would listen to him, including the Sanhedrin, that he would die, that he would be buried, and he would be resurrected. In this uh, aftermath, Matthew wants that to be so known that he repeats the Lord's word six times in his own gospel account. Six times Matthew reminds us that Jesus said he would die and he would be buried and he would resurrect. And you know it happened exactly as Jesus said it would. What a grand evidence of the resurrection of Christ, the historical evidence of the prophet's telling it foretelling it and it all coming about precisely number five the women were listed as the first eyewitnesses now if you were going to put together a hoax in the first century you would not be involving women as your witnesses and the reason why in the first century whether it's a roman culture or a jewish culture women were not deemed even capable of giving an eyewitness account unto testimony their testimony was not admissible in court so if you're going to put a hoax together why are you going to put women as the forefront of the testimony of what transpired you would never do that 
But God sees man and woman made in his image. And Jesus, throughout his ministry, elevated women far beyond what culture was readily accepting. And in the plan of God, it would be women who would be the first to see the resurrected Christ. And then the men would see the resurrected Christ. But if you're putting a hoax together, you are certainly not going to include women in the testimony, nor in the forefront of the testimonial evidence. And then number six, you can't deny the message, the centrality of this gospel message in the church. It revolutionized the world. The Apostle Paul was reminding those Christians in Corinth about the centrality of our message. This is who we are and this is what we communicate. And he writes to them, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So Paul is saying, Here is what's lifted up as the first and foremost of our message. And what is it? Christ crucified. That Christ was crucified in accordance with the scripture. Now, when you have that term, accordance with the scriptures, and he's going to repeat it, and when there's a repeating like this, there's an, a real emphasis that's being made. What is that talking about? It's talking about all those passages that I reminded you of just a moment earlier from Genesis 3 and all the way through, God allowed his plan to be known. And it came to a reality in Christ who lived sinlessly who died in the stead of sinners so that he might wipe our sin away and credit us with his righteousness and have victory over death and share that victory with us so this is the foremost message of the church that Christ died for sins our sins in accordance with the scripture that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas then to the twelve then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. In other words, that's a term for Christians who have died uh, because they don't taste death. It's as if they're sleeping. God is going to raise them up and stir them out of that, that state. Verse 7, he appeared to James, to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born. He's speaking about himself. He said, he appeared to me. The account to the gospel of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection is the central message of the church. And that message transformed Jerusalem. It transformed Judea. It transformed Samaria. And it is still transforming the world. Did you know a third of the world's population is being transformed right now by that glorious good news of Christ resurrected? It's amazing now whether you're one who follows the scripture and believes them or whether you're a denier you have to come to a reality that the secularists have come to there is not a bona fide historian in the world who would discount the movement of hundreds of witnesses post-resurrection who identified Jesus Christ resurrected you can't deny historically that there was a great religion that was started after the resurrection of Christ and a great permeation of that truth that transformed not just that city but the world. That would not have taken place if there was a dead body in a tomb somewhere. It transpired because Jesus was resurrected from the grave. 
It's agreed by all people that this message of the gospel is a transforming message. Now, what difference does it make to you? All this talk about the resurrection, what difference does it make? Well, let me help you to understand the difference that the resurrection makes. There's eight reasons that are given in Scripture, probably more. I'm only identifying eight of them. They're listed for you in your handout, so you can go back and read through the passages if you want. Number one, the resurrection is powerful because it is a sign to unbelievers. So you don't believe. The resurrection is the sign to help you in your unbelief. Now, you're not going to come to belief if you're not willing to do the hard work of investigating the resurrection. You can't just YouTube it. You can't take somebody else's word for it. You're going to have to do the dig work. You're going to have to go to the witnesses' accounts. You're going to have to go to the first-hand reports. You're going to have to go to some of the first-century historians. You're going to have to go to people who were there and read what they wrote. You're going to have to identify the movement of Christ. And you're going to have to come to conclusion, could those disciples have stolen the body of Christ? Could they have been willing to be persecuted? Could they have been willing to give their lives? You say, well, maybe they would. If they banded together, maybe they would. Could I remind you that every one of them died an individual's death, not a group's death? We might hold true to something if we could band together like brothers and sisters, but what happens when I'm alone and I'm persecuted and I have the threat of being murdered? That's exactly what happened to those firsthand witnesses. They were alone. Surely one of them would recant. Not a one of them did. You're going to have to come to some conclusions about the resurrection. If you're an unbeliever, I think it helps you to identify where your belief ought to be. It's also an answer to the doubters. All of us have problems with doubt from time to time in our life. Doubt for me has often been when I've swayed away from the Word of God, or it might be when you have had difficulty, maybe calamity in your life, hardship in your life, and you begin to hear the whisperings of, where is God in the midst of this? The resurrection is an answer for the doubters. The resurrection is, hey, if Christ was resurrected, then he is going to resurrect me as well. If he is the first fruits, then I'm part of the second harvest of the resurrection. This temporal thing that I'm experiencing right now, even if it's unto the death of my body, that is not the end. The resurrection tells me that there is more to come. And it will answer your doubt. It proves that Jesus' teachings are true. And Jesus taught some pretty significant things, but he didn't teach anything that's greater than I will die, but I will be resurrected. And if his resurrection is true, which I think the evidence reveals that it is, then you have to submit to all the teachings of Jesus as well. It proves that there is a central message of the church you don't have to worry if I'm going to give you some psychobabble when you come here how you can have a more effective and happy life. I'm not going to do that. We have a central message, and that is Christ crucified, Christ resurrected, and he's returning again. Amen. And that's where the power is. The power is not in me life coaching you. The power is in the resurrection. Can I remind you of us who are in faith that the same power that resurrected Christ from the grave is alive in us today? 
amen and that means that he gives us power for living out the christian life not a greater determination not a greater willpower that resurrection is the power for our christian life and it removes the fear of death that we once had knowing that we won't taste death but will be resurrected unto eternal life it is the assurance of god's return that christ is coming again as he left so he will return again the messenger said and finally it is the foretaste for all believers of what is to come in heaven we are all going to experience that. Everybody in here is going to experience the resurrection. Just, ah, preacher. I don't believe all that you're talking about. Doesn't matter. Everybody is going to experience the resurrection. Not a single person who will not experience the resurrection. What the resurrection of Jesus does is it forces us to make a decision about him. Whether you're the Sanhedrin or whether you're the disciples, the message was the same. The tomb is empty. He is resurrected. He is raised. Now, what you do with it is in your hands. But this day requires a decision. And the decision you make about the resurrection of Jesus will end with the result of your resurrection to come. For those of you who choose in faith to surrender your life to Christ, God credits your faith in His Son as righteousness, and you will stand before Him in His holiness and all the sin that you once committed has been wiped away and all the righteousness that Christ lived has been credited to you and you will enter into the joy of your master in a glorified body that is fit for heaven in all eternity. But for those who reject and deny Jesus and his resurrection, you will be resurrected and your body will be made to last for all eternity for separation from God in a very literal place called hell where the rejection of God is punished for throughout all eternity. You say, would God reject me like that? Oh, the bigger question is, are you going to reject a God who offers you grace? You got to make a choice. That's what Easter is calling us to make a choice. So what's your choice? My hope is that you will choose Jesus. That you'll surrender your life to him. And if you say, I don't know, I'm a doubter, then I pray that God would give you another day so that you can rush and start doing the dig work, looking at the evidence, coming to conclusion on your own. And I pray coming to the evidence that Christ is the Son of the living God. Altogether man, altogether God, so he might be suspended between heaven and earth, bearing our sin and shame on that cross, having the full exercise of God's justice against him and dying with it so that we might live in him. I pray that for every person here.